0: It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, you'll remember that chapters, really, 220 to to chapter 5, verse number 21... Paul is, is talking about justification and what the gospel is all about and how to be saved, how to be redeemed. He says in verse number 20, talking about the, the power of, uh, in chapter five, he talks about, uh, the power of Christ. And he says at the end of verse number 20, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, talking about salvation and the power of salvation. And now he is moving into a, a very new, topic that deals with what goes on in the believer's life after salvation. What happens in the believer's life, if you will, post-salvation? You've been saved. What happens now? And that's what he's talking about. Verse number 3, and this is one paragraph that runs through verse number 11. Some of your Bibles might have it divided into verse number 14. I think it ends at 11. We're going to take about four or five weeks, and we've already done it, verses 1 and 2. Now we're going to do 3 through 5 this morning, and then we'll continue on until this paragraph is done. It's just so deep and rich theologically that I didn't want to preach it just in one message. He says in verse number 3, our text this morning, know you not... That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised, raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Growing up, I had the privilege of growing up in a pastor's home, my sister and I did. Uh, My dad was a pastor, he retired about a year and a half ago, but during my childhood he was a pastor from really the time I was born until I left for college, all for except about 20 months that were there. I was born in eastern New Mexico, a small town called Tucumcari. That's the town. Now, if you're looking at that like, oh, that's a big mountain. It's not as big as the hill that brings you up to Linda Vista up Ulrich, but when the ground is that flat, everything seems big. It's probably the only, quote, mountain in probably 500 square miles or maybe 250 square miles. It's, it's a, a tremendously flat region of the world that we're there. Well, my My dad was pastoring in a little town outside of Tucumcari, which was the big city. The little town was called Logan, New Mexico. He was an interim pastor. And when I was six weeks old, my family moved back to Dumas, Texas. That's Dumas, Texas. That's all there is to it. There's a school that my sister went to. It's no longer there. The wind has carried it away. That's Dumas. Now, it's a little bit more to Dumas, but that's Dumas, Texas. And we lived there until I was about three years old. And when I was three, I actually turned three years old somewhere in Wyoming or something. And when I was three years old, we moved to Spanaway, Washington, Western Washington. Now, if you notice something about Spanaway, it's beautiful to look at. Go back to Dumas. That's the most beautiful part of Dumas, Texas, you say, where are the trees? There are none. Where are the mountains? There are none. What's there? That's, that's what we've been asking really for years. It's cattle oil town. Dumas, Texas. Spanaway, Washington. I lived in Spanaway from the time I was three till the time I was 13. I am a Washingtonian by, at heart, And you move somewhere when you're three, you develop the skills and the habits and all that of, uh, of being a Washingtonian. Then when I was 13, we moved to Dallas, Texas. Dallas is a little different than Spanaway. It's big and it's a metropolis. It's just different. And then when I was 15, my family, my dad left Dallas, Texas, where he was taking a a respite from pastoring, and we moved to Oceanside, California, and we lived in Oceanside. He started a church in Oceanside and lived there, and and, uh, it was a wonderful experience there in Oceanside. I learned something really quickly when I lived in Dallas, Texas. They didn't think people from Washington were normal. I remember showing up in Dallas and 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 uh, they talk a little bit different in Dallas. I remember a girl coming up to me one time in school she said, "Why are you so uppity?" I said, "What?" She goes, "You think you're something special. You finish all your words." I said, "What do you mean? I finish all my words." I know, no offense to those of you from the south. My roots are in Texas. My family's roots are in Texas. My parents live in Texas. I lived there a long time. But she said, "Why do you finish all your words like 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 you'd say California and not California?" Why do you do that? I learned something. They talk very different in Texas than they did Washington State. And then we moved to Oceanside, California, and I got made fun of for the way that I talked in Oceanside because they talk very different in Oceanside than they do in Texas. I had never used the word dude before in my life. I'd never seen Vans, the shoes before. I don't know that I'd ever ridden a skate. No, I'd ridden a skateboard maybe one time before in my life. I mean, just California was drastically different from Texas. It's like a whole other world. They made fun of the way that, why do you have such an accent, Chris? And they made fun of me and talked about me. And it was it was a wonderful experience. And and to learn some things. Then we left Oceanside, California. We moved to Spokane, Washington. Spokane's different than both of them. Just a very, very different world. Everywhere I moved, I had to learn a new culture. Every city that I went to, every school that I went to, every new, new place that I went to, every college, which was far too many, that I went to, every one of them had a culture and I had to learn that new culture. It's not dissimilar from what our missionaries go through when they move to the country they'll minister to. They'll take the language that they have and they have to learn a new language they not only learn a new language, they spend time with people so that they can understand the, the cultural family dynamics. They have to learn a new diet. Many of our missionaries have to learn a new political structure, a new way to cook, a, a new way in many ways even to dress. They have to learn an entirely new culture. That's really what Paul is talking about in chapter 6 a new culture, a new way of living, a new way of thinking. Uh, he's talking to these Gentiles and Roman, or, or Gentiles and Jewish Christians in Rome. And he is, he is reminded them of the power of the gospel in chapter two through chapter five. He's reminded them that, that the grace of God is greater than any sin that they've ever committed. But he, he's through the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He's being very, very careful to help them understand that their Christian life is not a life where they can just do whatever they want that there's a new culture. We would say it this way. There's a sanctifying identity. And Paul refers to this like in verse number 4. Um, towards the end, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. In verse number 5, we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse number 7, he that is dead is freed from sin. Verse number 8, now we, now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. We could also look at verses 10, 11, 13, 16, 18, 19, 22, and 23. Paul is helping us to understand something this morning that is so important that we are to walk, act, and live differently than we did prior to salvation. It's a sanctifying identity. When you become a Christian, something amazing happens. When we become a Christian, something amazing happens our identity changes it changes verse number three look at our text with me know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death our identity prior to salvation is found in John chapter 8, verse 31 to 34, where the Bible says in Jesus, uh, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, or then you really know that you're my disciples, and ye, sh- and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They, the Pharisees that were nearby, answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse number 16, look down there in your Bible with me. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? Romans chapter 6, verse number 20, for when ye were the servants of sin... You were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Before you came to Christ, you were the servant of sin. No, no, Pastor, before I got saved, I was a pretty good person. No, no, before you got saved, you were the servant of sin. You were under sin's control, you were under sin's power. Sin had the final say so. You could resist it, but only for a period of time. That's why the world has come up with statements like, "The best way to get over a temptation is to give in to it." You're the servant prior to salvation, of sin." And so was I. Sin had ultimate control. You ever, I, I've heard this, I've heard it once, I've probably heard it hundreds of times where people have said things like this to me, Pastor, I know I shouldn't do this and I try not to do it, whatever the this is, you can insert the this wherever you want, that's fine. I, I know I shouldn't do this and I try not to do this, but it just seems like there's some power over me that, that's almost making me do that. You know what that is? It's the control of sin in your life. Before salvation, you are at the mercy of sin. That's why he says you're the servant of sin. Verse number 20. These people had no real qualms about that. Prior to Christ, our identity is that we are a servant of sin. But our identity after salvation begins in verse number three, know you not, or, or don't you understand, or have you no discernment, or are you ignorant of this, that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ we're baptized into his death. Paul is saying in a rhetorical way to help us grasp the point, don't you get it? Don't you understand that you're baptized into Jesus Christ. That word baptized, Now we often use this passage to talk about baptism, and we will probably when we're done with uh, this brief series on newness of life in verses 1 to 11, but, but this word is, is very, very impactful. It means to immerse, to submerge, to dip, to plunge, it was a normal way in the first century when Paul was writing of describing the immersion or insertion of objects into something, like, like rope, like rings of a rope or rope into salty water, like, like immerse the ropes into that, or this was a common use, a scapel into a patient. The word would be used like this, I will baptize this scapel into your thigh, it's to immerse it into. And, and that's the whole idea. And when you see the word, it's in verse number three, it's a powerful word because of what it me- means here. The word into, the Greek word ice, EIS, means to be identified with what the name of that one stands for. So, So we have been baptized into, so whatever follows is what we're to be identified with. We're to be plunged into, we're to be, we're to be thrust into who or what? We're baptized into Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what he's saying. We're baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, this text is going to take a little bit of work for us to understand, and I don't want us to misunderstand what Paul is saying, but I, let me say this. He is not here, per se, talking about water baptism that we practice, which is, and I want to give this caveat, which absolutely is the first step of, of obedience in the believer's life. It's a testimony of our submission to Christ. It's an outward picture baptism is of an inward change. It's intended to let the world know that I'm a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. Biblical baptism always follows salvation. That's why we don't baptize babies or children who aren't sincere in their faith. We don't baptize non-believers person has to have a genuine biblical testimony of accepting Jesus Christ. They have to understand the gospel. We're, we're sincere about that. If, let me say this as well. If you're here and you put your faith in Christ, but you've not been baptized, you're being disobedient to Christ. Matthew chapter twenty eight verses nineteen and twenty, Acts two thirty eight, acts two forty one, acts eight, twelve to 16, sixteen, first Peter three twenty one, all help us to understand that baptism is a is a requirement for every true follower of Jesus Christ. One commentator said this, in other passages, Paul affirmed the importance of water baptism in obedience to the Lord's direct command. He, he mentions 1 Corinthians one thirteen 13 to 17, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 5, but he goes on, but that is, the, is only the outward symbol of the baptism to which he refers here. Here he is speaking metaphorically of the spiritual Im- immersion of the believer into Christ, through the Holy Spirit of the believers' intimate oneness with the divine Lord. It is the truth of which Jesus spoke when he said in Matthew twenty-eight, twenty, verse part C, uh, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, amen. And which he described as our fellowship with the Father and the Son in first 1 John one to three. In first Corinthians, Paul speaks of it as believers being in one spirit with Christ. And Paul explains to the church at Galatians, Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In each instance, the idea is that is being totally encompassed by and unified with Christ. So baptism here is, is not, and again, I try to preface this, we believe in the absolute importance of water baptism, but baptism does not save you, it does not regenerate you, it does not justify you, it does not adopt you, it is a symbol of an inward change that happened. It's an identification with the lost world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Baptism in our world seems to have become somewhat unimportant as far as the scripture would go or say. It's become the fun thing to do. You pray to prayer, now you need to get baptized. In our pantheistic culture, just people want to get baptized because they think it'll help their life. We've had people call our church without a doubt and say, I just need a place to get baptized. Well, we'd love to talk to you, and we'd love to talk to you about the gospel of Christ. No, 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 I don't want to talk about that. But somebody told being baptized, will help me live my life better, or will help me erase the problems from my life, or or whatever the case may be. And they say, "Uh, can't you just do that? When the answer is no. Why? Because baptism, biblically, is not just some fun thing to do. It has no regenerative efficacy, or it doesn't save you. It has no part in your salvation. It doesn't redeem you. It simply identifies you with Christ. That's it. That's all it does. It identifies you with Jesus. In our world, And I don't want to be that old guy that blames the whole world on new things. It's our world, mine too. It has become cheapened, meaningless, less than transformative in the life of the believer. M.R. DeHaan and his pamphlet on baptism It says on page 27, in the early days of the church, baptism was a declaration that the believer was uh, definitely identifying himself with that group of people who were called Christians and were despised and hated. To be a Christian in that day meant something. To identify yourself with those who are called Christians meant persecution, maybe death. It it meant being ostracized from your family, shunned by your friends. And the one act, which was the final declaration of this identification, was baptism. As long as a man gathered with Christians, he was tolerated. But when once he submitted to baptism, he declared to all the world, "I I belong to this despised group. And immediately he was persecuted, hated, and despised. In baptism, therefore, the believer entered into the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. A person might be a believer and keep it strictly a secret and thus avoid unpleasantness and suffering. But once he submitted to public baptism, he had burned his bridges behind him. In America today, being a Christian is kind of the thing to be. I was talking to one of our missionaries in a Creative Access Nation recently and he was talking about the suffering of the people that he ministers to who get baptized. Baptism matters. Baptism is huge. But here in this text, just so that we can be expositionally correct, Paul is not talking about the Water baptism. Paul is talking about a spiritual baptism, a baptism that happens by the Lord. And the moment that you get saved, verse number three, know you not that so many of us as were baptized, immersed, plunged into Jesus Christ, we were immersed or plunged or baptized, notice what he says, into his death. His death. We love this concept of man, I'm gonna identify with Jesus and 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 I identify with Christ and my identity is in Christ. And we have this idea like like People mean like like the miracle power of Christ or or the, the 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 compassion and love of Christ. I'm identified by that. No, no. Notice what you're identified with here in verse number three. Notice what you're plunged into. You are baptized into His death. That conversion. A Christian is moved into the realm of Christ's power, and this spelled the demise of a life centered on themselves. A believer is immersed in, placed in, identified in Christ's death. This is the believer this is the the, the, the believer's position in Christ. Well, I just love those stories of like like Christmas like like jesus and 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 there he is in the in the manger and and he's in Bethlehem and that story I just want to be identified with that or I want to be identified with with, with Jesus as a twelve year old child who is about his father 's business, or I want to be identified with jesus when when he starts his ministry and he turns the water into wine or he calls Matthew or the miracle working Jesus when he feeds the thousands or the miracle-working Jesus when He heals the sick or raises the dead. I want to be identified with that. Somebody might even say, I want to be identified with the Jesus Christ who who is, is suffering before Pilate, and He's the silent suffering Lamb when He is beaten, when He is mocked, when He is ridiculed. I, I want to be identified with when Jesus is hanging on the cross. I want to be identified with that. Well, no, friends, we must understand this. We are identified identified with his death. Very simply, if the believer really died when Christ died, then he has died to sin and is freed from sin and sin's penalty. Our identity is in his death. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 so beautifully conveys this. Where Paul says in verse number 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of Christ, or the members of Christ? Shall I then make the members of, take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When a person really believes in Christ, God counts it as the death of Christ. Christ. That is, God counts the person as having died with Christ. God takes that person's faith and baptizes or immerses that person into being a participant in Christ's death. And don't lose me. I know we're dealing with deep theology for a minute. But God considers that person to have died Christ's death. God considers the believer to be placed into Christ's death, to be identified with Christ's death, to be a partaker of Christ's death, to be in union with with Christ's death, to be bound with Christ's death. God God counts that for the person. That's why Paul could powerfully and sincerely say, Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, which loved me, or who loved me, and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. Paul's not being theoretical here. Bring that back up, would you please? He's not trying to be poetic here. To the believer or for the believer, God literally counts us to have been crucified on the cross with Christ. I'm crucified with him. He doesn't stop here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. For as many of you has been baptized into Jesus Christ, have put on Christ. You've been plunged into Christ, you put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You put on Christ. Our identity changes from being a servant of sin... being with Christ on the cross. Our identity is in His death. It takes all arrogance away. I'm a pretty good Christian. I can kind of do what I want. I can go about what I want. I can do my own. No, no. It removes all arrogance. Why? Because I'm not identified with anything about me. I'm not identified in my own abilities. I'm not identified in my own capabilities. I am identified in the death of Christ. It is shockingly contrasted with how so many people view the world. And because my identity is in Christ and the death of Christ, notice verse number 4 where he says, Therefore, being buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Not only does our identity change, who we live for changes. Not only does our identity change... But who we live for changes. Paul says in verse number four, to walk in the newness of life. That word walk there just simply means to live or pass one's life. And Paul uses this word in Ephesians four seventeen, Ephesians 5, 8, Philippians three seventeen, Galatians chapter one, verse number 10, where he says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. You might live your life or pass your life into all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk, verse number four, in the newness of life. Newness, a a renewal. Not an experience similar to the past. This is a totally new experience. I'm getting old enough now where it seems like some of you who are older than me You kind of know this feeling that everything that you do that's new reminds you of something that you've done. Like, oh, I went here and I did this. Like, oh, you know what? That reminds me when I was like nine years old and my parents did this. When I was a kid, we used to go to the river up in Washington and it was a snowmelt river and it was super cold and, and, and you'd get in it and you literally thought you were gonna freeze to death. And, and it, was, it was awesome, it was wonderful, we loved it. Now, every time that I get cold, I think of that. This word, newness is an experience that is not similar to anything in the past. This newness refers to a a new quality of character, not a point in time. This refers to a, a new person as opposed to just a new point in time. Just as sin and a servant of it characterized our old life, righteousness now characterizes our new life. That's verse number 5, we've been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Scripture is filled with descriptions of the believer's new spiritual life. Ezekiel chapter 20, I'm sorry, 36 verse 26 says, we're given a new heart. Ezekiel 18, 31, we're given a new spirit. Psalm chapter 40, verse number 5, we're given a new song. Revelation 2, verse number 17, we're given a new name. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17, we're called a new creation. Galatians 6, 15, we're a new creature. Ephesians 4 24, we're a new self. When a true person truly honors God by trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior, he spiritually places them into the death of Christ. What would cause God to do this? Is it because we bring something to the table? What would cause God to give us this kind of a power? I don't like that word power. Let me rephrase it. What would cause God to give us this kind of ultimate victory? Very simply, his love for his son. God loves his son so much that anyone who believes his son, anyone who trusts his son, anyone who honors his son by believing and trusting in him, he will count them in the death of Christ. If the believer is counted by God as having been immersed into the death of Christ, then the believer has died to sin. The believer has died to the penalty of sin. To the judgment of sin, we're freed from the authority of sin. We're freed from the penalty, the 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 the, the consequence of sin, because we no longer sin. No, we are alive unto God through Christ our Lord. It's mean that the the habits and the desires of sin no longer control us. Sin ceases to have a place or a position in our lives. We are freed from sin's habit, we're freed from sin's control, we're freed from sin's bondage, we're freed from sin's enslavement, we're freed from sin's rule and reign, and we're free from the guilt of sin. It means you no longer live in sin. Now, we cannot live without sinning. We are Imperfect. As the Apostle Paul will later say in the book of Romans, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? We're not perfect. But we no longer are controlled by sin. We're no longer to desire sin. We are to practice and to desire righteousness. Seeking to please God in all that we do. The believer is to be immersed, buried, placed into, identified in Christ's death. I may have said this a little bit, but I want to just drill down a second. One of the, every generation has their phrases. Most of the time they're started by good people that go bad. No, the people don't go bad, the phrase goes bad. And one of them today, one of our phrases that goes, has gone bad is this concept, I just need to be identified with Christ. I just need to remember my identity in Christ. I just need to be reminded of my identity in Christ. Now listen, if you're a believer, I think I understand what that person might originally be trying to say. But our identity, again, is not in His power. It's not in His miracles. It's not in His authority. It's not in what He gives us. Our identity is in the death of Christ that's why we're victorious as believers over sin sin no longer controls us well pastor why do I sin the same reason I do listen to me because you choose to just like I do I've been granted victory by God over sin in my life. That's why your marriage doesn't have to stink. When you've died on the cross with Jesus, it's really easy to die to self. When my identity is not in who I am, But in the death of Christ, it's very easy to die to self. And the passage itself, and, and Paul is writing this, it seems like because he's fearful that some of the Christians in Rome, and through the leading of the Spirit, obviously he writes this, God knows everything, and Paul writes this because it, it seems like in chapter 5 there would be some people who would argue, well, if if where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, then I can do whatever I want, and I can live however I want, and I can act however I want, and 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 God still loves me which God loves no matter what. Let us not try to move away from that, not for a single second would we ever want to do that. But we understand emphatically that I am saved, not to simply say that I'm saved, but I'm saved to bring glory to God through the sanctifying power of His Son and His Spirit. What do you mean sanctifying? Holiness. There are things I just can't do because I'm dead to sin. There are things I won't do because I'm dead to sin. It doesn't control us anymore. I'm not looking for something to say. I just want you to think about it. I'm not under the power of the porn website anymore. Why? Well, because I died with Christ on the cross. I'm not selfish anymore, because I died with Christ on the cross. I I, I don't have to be a jerk anymore, because I died with Christ on the cross, if I'm saved. Verse number five, you've been planted together in the likeness of his death, you shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. If I understand that I'm, I'm dead with Christ, then in the same way or in the likeness, I'll, I'll live in that resurrection power. When I was a kid, we moved around a lot. I had to learn a new culture. I would learned new culture a lot of times. As I'm a, as a Christian, I'm different. I'm different than I was. And I'm different than the world. My identity in Christ means I I'm, I'm not disturbed when the world and those in it and those secularized followers of Christ condemn me for being a sincere follower of Christ. I am identified in Christ's death. So nothing that you could say to me could challenge that. I've already died in Christ. I've been plunged into his death. I'm no longer controlled by the sins of my past, by the struggles of my present, nor the fear of my future. My life is hid with God in Christ. I don't know how you have identified yourself lately. I don't know. But I could say this. If you're a follower of Christ, you're not the quiet kid from a broken home. You're not the uncontrolled addict. You're not the loser father and the weak mother or the hopeless reprobate. If you're saved, you are a child of God whose life has been bought by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Live like it. Live like it. Why would we live for a world that hates us? Why would we live for a world that wants to destroy us? And Paul is saying here, if you've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Resurrection power does not come to people who don't identify with his death. See, our identity is simply to sanctify us. Let me use you as an illustration. Bernie just gets saved. Starts out right here. All of this is the past. All the garbage. If you don't know Bernie, you think he came from a perfect family because he never tells the truth. Dude has, just like everybody else, Apart from the grace of God, you, I mean, problems. With the grace of God, problems, but ten times more. Burn, gets saved. Over there is where we want to be. Sanctification is, I'm just taking steps. Steps to get closer to Christ. Every step that I take closer to Christ is... Is a step further away from my past. Every step that I take is a step of sanctifying identification. It's one more step. One more step. One more step. Well, how quickly do these steps come? Sometimes they come pretty fast, and in some areas, they're pretty slow. Prior to salvation, Bernie was arrogant he hasn't got victory over that yet. No, I'm totally teasing. Prior to salvation, he had some struggles in some areas that after salvation were real easy to get victory over. But there's some things that every single day of his life, he is drawn to his knees to beg God for victory and strength because he is tempted and tempted and struggle. And you say, oh yeah, when we say that we're tempted and struggle in American church today, we always think of sexual sin, which it might be, but there, anything can tempt us. I was just in Clovis, New Mexico. No one should ever go to Clovis. It's like Dumas. There's nothing there. But it's, it's flat, hot, cold, and always windy. We were driving past this golf course in a neighborhood, and there was a house for sale. 5,000-square-foot house on like an acre and a half, and um, I'm trying to remember, like five bedrooms, eight bathrooms. They must have had girls living there, um, and uh, my daughters want two bathrooms each, and um, and it was huge, a huge, beautiful home in the most expensive part of town. And it was for sale. And I looked it up. $1.2 million. So I really quickly looked up. Houses in my neighborhood. 1,200 square feet. In the hood. I don't live in the hood, but I kind of do you know, they took pictures of it, and they had to remove the homeless guy's garbage to take the picture and all that. And I looked at the price of houses in my neighborhood, and you guys know the story, 1.2 million. Now, houses aren't a temptation for me, because Debbie told me if I ever live in a bigger house than I currently live in, she's leaving me because she's not cleaning it. (laughs) To which I said, you don't clean this one, so what's the big deal. You say, you didn't say that. Those were my exact words. And her response was to laugh at that and then slap me. So, wonderful. I'm not tempted really by... Now, that's just not something I struggle with. I don't really care. Not my thing. It might be somebody else's thing. So, when I say this process of sanctification, it doesn't mean, though it would include... But it does not simply mean, oh, yeah, you're a pervert. No, no, no. It means anything that would distract us or detract us from God or anything that would violate His Word. And so God is constantly conforming us and sanctifying us into the image of Christ day after day after day after day after day. Well, when does this sanctification process end? When you get to heaven. We used to sing that song, probably not in your Lutheran church that you grew up in. It had a little too much, even had too much rhythm for Baptists, but we sang it when the pastor wasn't listening. When I get to heaven, going to walk with Jesus? When I get to heaven, going to sing his name? When I get to heaven, going to talk with Jesus and praise, I don't remember, something, praise his holy name? Yes. When I get to heaven, a lot of things are going to change when I get to heaven. We'll be, we'll be perfect in God's eyes. We'll have glorified bodies in God's eyes. There'll be no more struggle, no more sin, no more heartache, none of that. But until then, we are in the process of sanctifying, uh, sanctified identification. I am more like and more like and more like and more like Christ. That's why it is so discouraging when Christians are at one point here and then they start, we use this word, backsliding. If there's ever been a point in your life where you were more sanctified than you are now, you're in the wrong spot. Well, yeah, but that was hard. Do you mean being the servant of sin is easy? With the consequences and the judgment and the pain and the heartache, you're telling me that's easier? Now, listen, come on. I understand without a doubt this isn't always the easiest life to live. There are days I don't want to spend time in private worship, there are days I don't want to come to church. Come on, Pat. No, I have to preach, and I still don't want to. I literally want to phone it in sometimes. Like, just put this up to the microphone, and I'll preach from my bedroom. We want to do that. No, no, no. Why don't we? Because we're identified with his death. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live in the flesh, or in this body, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the grace and power of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Satan didn't give himself for you. He's trying to destroy you for his own benefit. That's all he desires to do. And sanctifying identification simply means this. God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to give up sin for you by your grace and power. And I'm going to remember that I am identified in your death. Removes all sense of pride. I kind of wish you just said you're identified in his miracles. Miracles or maybe his power, or maybe his grace. But he said, I'm identified, plunged into, baptized into his death. And everyone who truly knows Christ as their Savior, everyone who's truly put their faith and trust in Christ alone, in his death, burial, and resurrection... Everyone who's done that, he promises to give them eternal life. It's a guarantee. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, we encourage you to come to Christ. Be identified in his death. If you're here and a believer, we're to be sanctified. And to walk in the newness of life. In the newness of life. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m.